Good morning. Welcome back to the Broadcast Retirement Network. I'm Jeff Snyder. This is BRNAM for Monday, January 9th, 2023. And our top story today, can access to private markets improve DC participant outcomes? Today's show is powered by the Georgetown University Center for Retirement Initiatives and Willis Towers Watson. To learn more about the latest research in this report, visit the link below. And joining me now to discuss this and a lot more, Angela Antonelli is with the Georgetown University Center for Retirement Initiatives, and David O'Meara is with Willis Towers Watson. Angela, David, great to see you. Happy New Year. Thanks so much for joining us on the program this morning. Happy New Year. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. Angela, I want to come back to you. And we, we last saw you, I think, in the month of December. You were part of a program with Mary Morris of Virginia 529 talking about Retire Path VA, a great program to help uh, maybe underrepresented or, or people who don't have a retirement plan access retirement savings. But I want to take a step back and we're talking about part- improving participant retirement outcomes and mm-hmm. income. Uh, for those that do have access to a retirement plan, how are they doing? Well, uh, you know, not dissimilar from what I had said when we last spoke, Jeffrey, you know, for the most part, a lot of American workers are not doing particularly well. They don't have a lot saved for retirement. You know, when we think about it, that already 20% today of of older Americans rely on Social Security for 90% um, of their income in retirement. And unfortunately, as we look at our older, uh, older workers today, many of them, you know, are not prepared and are looking at a retirement where they're going to run short of money. Uh, a lot of those who are close to retirement age, 55 to 64, you know, if they they may have about a little over 100,000 uh, in retirement. But if you think about that annuitized, it's maybe an additional $300 to supplement if if the only other income they have might be Social Security. The pandemic made things even worse for older Americans in terms of leaving the workforce um, and increasing their chances that they're likely to fall short. There's significant disparities by race and by gender with respect to access to retirement savings plans and the amount that that they have been able to actually save for retirement. Usually they have maybe 25% of what you would see uh, white workers who have had a chance to save for retirement. So again, you know, there's tremendous inequity in the system. And just generally, a lot of Americans don't have a lot uh, a lot saved for retirement. And, you know, we talk about how much people have saved for retirement for those who do have access, and it's still not great. But, you know, part of our the challenge in our retirement system is not just about the amount that people are able to save for retirement, because that really doesn't tell us much. At the end of the day, what does that mean in terms of supplemental income? So for those who do have savings for retirement, how are we going to help them? Because we have a system today that puts all the responsibility on the worker, not only to save, make the decision to save, how much to save, but then they have to figure out how to invest that money to grow over time and then how to 
to manage that in terms of lifetime income. So it's much more of a challenge than beyond just helping more Americans save and save more for retirement. But how does our system also help to have that in, have those that savings grow and convert into lifetime income? And that relates to the work that we've now done most recently at Georgetown in collaboration with Willis Tarrick Watson to look at that particular element of the retirement cycle about taking those retirement savings and how those savings are ultimately invested to grow to try to maximize or improve significantly retirement income outcomes. David, I want to come to you. I mean, Angela laid out a, a really good um, case about the retirement system. I mean, there's access, but we want to provide better access and better outcomes. And I want to take a step back because let's talk about the public markets. And by public markets, I mean, stocks and bonds, uh, mutual funds, maybe ETFs if you're so invested in an IRA. Um, but let's talk about how has the public markets, how have, uh, bad English this morning, but how have the public markets done, say for the last 10 years? Um, you know, I remember, and I'll let you answer in a second, but just to tee this up, I remember when I was getting into the retirement industry and they said a good rule of thumb was an 8% return. Look, I don't think we're getting 8%. I don't get, I'm not getting 8% of my money. <laughs> well, certainly not in 2022. Um, however, you know, post financial crisis, although, you know, that's cherry picking, you're picking the low point um, in, in the cycle. If you just, just look at after the financial crisis, um, public markets did quite well. Um Inflation and short and long-term interest rates were held at all-time lows for an extended period of time, which meant that valuations and uh, for public equities and fixed income provided really strong returns, you know, over comparables such as cash. Um, so, really taking risk in a portfolio and being in be, just being exposed to that capital appreciation did phenomenal things for savers. That said, that that era of easy money um, has has ended, and um, and also as we look under the hood a little bit about that under that performance that we saw over the preceding twelve years, it was largely driven by a select group of companies that have come to dominate the tech industry. You pull the you know the top five six tech firms out of the benchmark and the returns don't look nearly as attractive um, as having them be included. And so now in recent markets where we've seen a change in this dynamic where inflation is now higher and interest rates are now higher, companies that make little bits of money today with the promise of huge, huge returns down the road are being discounted at that higher rate. And therefore, you know, those valuations have, have become adjusted. And so these risk assets, and it's not just in equities and fixed income, it could be, you know, really any, any exposure to markets. We've seen what's happened to crypto assets where it was a, it was a free for all and everything just kept going up until now everything's being readjusted and people are wondering where the value is. It's happening across all markets. Um, and that's where we think that, that private markets and, and other diversifying strategies have a role in portfolios for, for savers. And Angela, I want to come back to you because there's a lot of, I can think of public DB plans, I can think of multi-employer plans um, and others that still, maybe some private sector plans that still have DB plans. And 
to David's point, uh, there are private market allocations, hedge funds, private debt, um, private equity. I mean, you go down the list of, of the types of, of, of products, but they do have it in their DB plans. Are you seeing, are you hearing about, in, in terms of your discussions, more plan sponsors adding private markets to their investment lineup, or at least in, including it in some additional due diligence? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, we've seen for a long time, as you point out, in the context of defined benefit plans, whether they be public or private, that for for a long time, there's been a more significant allocation uh, to um, these uh, other asset classes, whether it be private equity, private credit, uh, hedge funds, and so on. Um, and also high net worth individuals have access to these types of asset classes. So from you know, basic fairness, when we look at today's defined contribution system and our savers within that system, why shouldn't they also have access to these same kinds of additional diversifying asset classes that we see within the defined benefit uh, and individual you know, uh, investor world today? Um, and with that in mind, and particularly what we're seeing in terms of the more recent market volatility, um, the inflation environment that we're in today, it certainly has been raising the questions and the challenges of those who manage these types of portfolios about how you can continue to to grow, uh, you know, have your have your portfolios grow and asking questions about whether or not this additional this notion of further diversification would be beneficial and in the inclusion of these types of asset classes. So with that in mind, it's a question that's been coming up more and more. It's being examined more in the DC plan context. I think, you know, and David can certainly, uh, you know, add to what I'm saying here with respect to what we see uh, within the plan, within, um, within the plan market, that in the context of DC plans today, I think, you know, there is that consideration. And when we look at, again, the work that we've done here at Georgetown in collaboration with Willis Towers Watson, looks at the inclusion of some of these other asset classes in the context of target date funds. Uh, and I think that we're starting to see, I think there is increasing amounts of customization of target date funds. And when you look at these other asset classes, there is the beginning of inclusion of small um, small percentages of these alternative asset classes in to things like their target date funds. At the same time, we see that where that's more likely to happen, and again, David can correct me if I'm wrong, but we do see that this kind of innovation and evolution with respect to the use of these more customized funds tends to be with larger plans rather than smaller plans. Um, but, and uh, you know, I think we see maybe about 15% or, or so of plans perhaps using these, these types of alternative asset classes. So again, we're it's it's a it's an incremental change than an evolution and innovation that we're beginning to see in the DC market. It, again, historically we've seen it in the DB plan market. So, but again, it's been incremental um, with the inclusion of these these diversifiers and also uh, the not the percentage of plans that are beginning to use them. Yeah, uh, David. Before we go to commercial break, I want to ask you about your experience at uh, Willis Towers Watson and and your maybe some clients and, and, and what you're seeing. I mean, are you seeing standalone private markets or the more, as, as uh, Angela just mentioned, inclusion of the target date, maybe a balanced fund or the good old managed account, which uh, seems to be making a big comeback lately? 
Definitely where we've seen the interest has been in multi-asset solutions. So as a component to the target date fund or the managed account solution. Um, it, and there's that's where the there can have, be an asset manager that can kind of manage the complexity of allocating to these alternative investments, whether that it be um, operational or liquidity management. Um, can be done at you know by a port you know a portfolio manager as opposed to an individual defined contribution participant. So definitely you know including in the in those multi asset portfolios is is where we've seen the interest and where we think it's appropriately placed. Um, some of these asset classes we don't want participants to be putting fifty percent of their portfolios into or give them the flexibility necessarily to do so. We want a skilled portfolio manager who understands how to build robust asset allocation uh, for participants to have the controls of that to help participants have the right portfolios without having to get an MBA in order to uh, reap the rewards. Yeah, really, really good point. Well, guys, I need to take a very quick break. When we come back, we'll pick up the conversation, learn more about the inclusion of private markets in DC plans. More ahead, you're going to want to stay tuned right here on BRN AM. Imagine a new television network that will make you richer, healthier, and in control of your financial future. This network is for the policewoman in Nashville, Tennessee, the baker in Dubuque, Iowa, the teacher in Lexington, Kentucky. We wanna make the idea of savings and retirement culturally relevant. But what do you see as a defining issue of the midterms? Especially for the smaller businesses, I mean, they are the lifeblood of the American economy. Featuring exclusive interviews, current affairs, and docu-series. 33 yeah. years old, you retired early. The philosophy is money only matters if it helps you live a life that you love. But you gotta start thinking about retirement as soon as you get in. The Broadcast Retirement Network will drive very high engagement with premium partnerships. So this isn't retirement and savings for your parents or grandparents. This is for all Americans. And we're gonna change the way you think about money. Welcome to the next frontier of retirement and savings. This is BRN, the Broadcast Retirement Network. Tax audits, tax liens, wage garnishments. Every day we hear stories like this about good folks who are simply struggling to pay their bills. Each of them are living a frightening IRS tax nightmare and they are afraid it will destroy their lives. I'm a divorced single mom and my ex-husband left me and the kids with a lot of unpaid bills, including unpaid taxes. I was really starting to show my stress on my kids because the IRS had sent me a letter demanding a huge payment from me. I couldn't afford it. So then the IRS was threatening to garnish my wages. I'm already living paycheck to paycheck. That would have put me over the edge financially. It truly seemed hopeless, but then a friend at work told her to call the tax relief line. 
The people at the tax relief line, they told me about something called innocent spouse relief. They worked it out so that all of the taxes from my ex are not my problem. I don't know how that works and, and I don't care. All I care about is that I don't owe the IRS a dime and they are not going to take my paycheck. Even if it seems hopeless, you should call the number on your screen right now. There is absolutely no cost for the call or the consultation. You are under no obligation. If you are worried that the IRS could garnish your wages, seize your assets, even take your home, call us right now. The Tax Relief Line is here to help you. Now you have a knowledgeable, professional team of tax experts that are ready to negotiate with the IRS and fight for you to save you money. The Tax Relief Line's professionals have successfully negotiated thousands of cases, reducing and sometimes even eliminating the tax debt for their clients. It's very easy to get started. Simply call the number on your screen right now. You don't have to live in fear anymore. The call and the consultation are free. Welcome back. A reminder that today's show is powered by Georgetown University Center for Retirement Initiatives and Willis Towers Watson. To learn more about the latest research and particularly this report, visit the website below. Angela, David, thanks so much for sticking around with us for segment two. I haven't lost a guest yet. Thanks so much for sticking around. <laughs> no, I haven't chased, seriously, I haven't chased anybody off. Uh, let's pick up the conversation because um, with add, the addition of asset classes to a plan, that necessitates oftentimes more due diligence. And David, just to pick up the conversation from um, the end of the last segment, are you seeing a lot of due diligence now when plan sponsors, you're sitting around that quarterly table with all the trustees, all the committee members, the fiduciaries, however you want to describe them, and they're, and, and they're asking for more due diligence about this fund or that fund. Are you seeing more of that with the team? Absolutely. Um, there's, there's a high level of scrutiny amongst <laughs> plan fiduciaries of defined contribution programs, and rightfully so. They're charged with... Um, overseeing and managing assets, um, assets for their employees and former employees. Um, and it's a, it's an essential task and a lot of responsibility. And they're ensuring that they're doing the appropriate due diligence. They're expanding that due diligence into exploring other asset classes, um, you know, such as, such as private, private equity and, and real estate and, and, and other diversifying asset classes progress and adoption has been relatively slow, but that's not, that's not anything new. The DC industry tends to move at a somewhat glacial pace yeah. um, and uh, unless they're incentivized otherwise. And um, a lot of the barriers to implementation of these, um, these solutions have been overcome. Daily pricing of, of private or less liquid assets has been established. Um, Operational challenges associated with the record keeper, or associated custodian, um, uh, can be overcome with cash flow management and, and the need to providing participants with the necessary liquidity they need in order to move assets, though they tend not to. Um, and, and fees can be managed through a fee budget or an implementation approach, approaches such as you know co-investment and things to, to keep the, the fees of the arrangements down because allocating to alternatives is more expensive than allocating to you know, public markets. Um, so there's a lot of work that's being done behind the scenes so that we haven't seen widespread adoption doesn't necessarily mean that the 
doesn't mean that the work isn't being done. It just takes time to kind of work through that due diligence process and, and for all of the stakeholders to be comfortable with doing something that right now is still outside the norm. Though as time goes on, I believe that we're going to see it be more and more the norm, especially as we're seeing the rollout of the, the state plans, the multi-employer plans, pooled employer plan arrangements, which are now getting to scale. We think those are going to be you know, places where DC innovation happens in the marketplace, and that's going to spill over to the employer-sponsored plan market as well. Angela, I want to talk a little bit about the Secure Secure Act, Secure 2.0, I guess, which uh, to everyone's surprise, not surprise, I guess, jubilation passed uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, and we're yet to see, we've yet to see the regulatory guidance. But, but going back to the retirement outcomes and retirement income, do any of those provisions as you see it, as you understand it, um, do they, you know, and I think there's a great case that you all are making in the paper and, and, and today on the program, but is there anything in those provisions that might address what we're talking about, which is improving the retirement income shortfalls that so many Americans age 50 and over are going to have? Again, you know, Secure 2.0 is it's an incredible accomplishment. You know, following three years on the heels of, of the first round of uh, Secure uh, reforms back in 2019, a lot of what's in Secure uh, continue incremental reforms of our retirement system, but they're important reforms because they do focus more on closing the access gap and overall uh, improving of financial well-being and security uh, for many uh, millions of American workers. So there are lots of there are a lot of great things in there with respect to what the industry will now have in terms of tools. Uh, plan designs to be able to continue to sell um, to employers who don't currently offer plans to their workers. You know, Secure didn't ad really address the overall issue of uh, what will be the continuing reality that employers do not have to offer their workers a retirement plan. In the context of the state programs, which David had mentioned and which many folks know that the Georgetown Center works closely with the states, in that context, in those states without a YRA programs, employers have to do something. They either have to offer a plan, and if they don't, then they have to facilitate the savings of their workers through the state program. So, but nationally, employers, if you're not in one of those states, you don't have to offer a retirement plan. Secure gives industry the ability to get out there with some additional products like starter 401ks, to to offer uh, simple simpler lower cost options for for some of these uh, employers to consider. They're also really powerful. Uh, they're really important tax incentives that are in there that help cover the costs uh, for small employers who want to adopt plans. For savers, there's the refundability of the savers tax credit. The use of the power of auto enrollment in future new uh, employer sponsored plans. Again, I think Congress looking at what the experience of states and the use of auto enrollment and how effective that is as a tool to increase saver participation and boost savings has now um, now going to be something that we will begin to see more in the employer's private employer uh, sponsored plan market. 
addressing issues around portability and lost accounts, again, will help to reduce leakage in the system, getting more workers in and making it easier for more part-time workers to begin to be eligible for their employer plan. So there's just a lot of great stuff in there to move us towards, hopefully, uh, what we're able to do in terms of closing the access gap and getting more workers into the system. But then again, the financial wellness aspects of it, for example, making it uh, making emergency savings accounts uh, uh, available uh, and also using auto enrollment in the context of emergency savings accounts, the ability of employers to match, uh, to make contributions to their workers' retirement accounts, even though their workers may be still paying off student loans. And then again, the notion of, of managing uh, your income in retirement and that one size doesn't fit all and the ability of workers, again, the changes in the required minimum distribution rules, for example, um, are some of the things that are important in helping workers uh, decide what to do with their savings and what works best for them. So again, there's Secure 2.0, Hopefully, along with Secure, which was done three years ago, we'll continue to have the market evolve uh, and have us ha see the expansion of employer-sponsored plans and ways that workers have access to save. And if they're saving more, then again, within the context of the retirement system, we also have to continue to focus on how do we make that savings grow and the work that we're talking about here with respect to these other asset classes and integrating them into the investment for portfolio and helping those assets grow so that ultimately over time, workers will have larger amounts of savings at the time of retirement to then you then think about how to turn that income um, take or take those savings and convert them into a retirement paycheck at the time of retirement. So again, there's lots of great stuff and exciting time with respect to retirement reform and continuing innovation in our retirement system, whether it's savings, how to invest the money, and then how to manage that money in retirement. Well, David, last question for you. And you know, our industry is pretty famous for the tagline, past performance is not indicative of future <laughs> results. But I have to think that you know, anytime you're rolling out a new product or you're thinking about a new concept, you do regression testing and you look backwards because that's the only data you have. You can't predict the future, mm -hmm. but at least I can. Maybe you guys can. That would be great if you could. We'd all be billionaires. But you probably have taken the numbers, looked at them. How has what we're talking about today, with the, which is the inclusion of private markets in some capacity, some allocation, have they improved the outcomes, the, the retirement income of participants long term when you look at the numbers? Yeah, so the... Um Looking backwards over time, and, and certainly it's time time dependent of which time scale you're looking at, but private markets, whether it be corporate equity, real estate, or credit, have done quite well and outperformed public market comparables um, over long-term time periods. Um, and then recent markets have done a far better job of protecting investors from downside risks. Um, our research really took that historical performance and applied that on a forward-looking basis if these private assets continue to deliver what we've grown accustomed to them delivering to investors. And there's no strong reasons from our standpoint why it wouldn't um, is really where, where we focus the research. And, and we found that in allocating to a series of portfolios, such as target date funds across one's career, um, that included alternatives, further improved 
outcomes upon a typical target date fund um, improve the retirement income expectations by 8% um, with modest allocations to those um, alternative investments. And in a worst case scenario, still improved uh, outcomes by 6%. This means that at a similar level of risk and a similar level of contributions by participants, um, they can be provided on an expected case, you know, 8% more in retirement income, um, which is relatively substantial. You think about, uh, you know, they could contribute 8% or more every, you know, more than they currently do every single year and, and end up with the same result. I'm not saying that they shouldn't, maybe they should also put in more money, but having, being able to generate better outcomes for them without them having to say, adjust adjust their savings. Um, you know, that's where we're really focused on is can we improve outcomes regardless of how much participants are putting in? Can we shepherd their assets better um, than say having the restricted style boxes and, and asset classes that we've had historically in defined contribution plans, um, which has relatively been limited to public, public stocks and bonds and mutual funds um, and, or, or related ETFs expanding that opportunity set to access the same asset classes that other large asset owners use um, can improve outcomes and deliver better, better retirements for defined contribution savers than the, the status quo, uh, which is limited in their use of these alternative investments. Well, guys, great conversation. And I think, look, I mean, this is what having those committee meetings is about. It's not just how the funds do last quarter, right? It's about how can we make our plan better to improve the outcomes of participants? And there's a vested interest there because employers eventually want their employees to retire. They don't want them working forever. And that's the purpose of a retirement plan. Guys, we're going to leave it there. David, Angela, great to see you as always. Great work on the paper. And we look forward to having you back on the program again very soon. Thanks, great. David. Thank you for having us. Thanks, David. Thanks, Jeff. Well, that wraps up this episode of BRNAM. I have a topic of interest, someone you think we should talk to. Then drop us a line and don't forget for all the latest security news and lifestyle, wellness, finance, tech, so much more and all in one place, check out today's edition of our daily newsletter, The Morning Pulse. Want to search our archives, check out our latest content, we'll visit our website and of course, all of our 300 streaming partners. We're backing in tomorrow for another edition of BRNAM. Until then, I'm Jeff Snyder. Stay safe, keep on saving and don't forget, roll with the changes. Now is your opportunity to co-create content around any topic on the first lifestyle and wellness network. Reach a global audience through our platform and co-own exclusive branded content. All of our programs are available on demand and also as audio only podcasts so you can take us on the go. Broadcast Retirement Network, available anytime, anywhere, and on any device.